Good morning. Our scripture this morning is Revelation chapter 2, uh, verses 8 through 17, if you'd like to follow along. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. But be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him, who has the sharp, two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to the idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Thanks, Mark. You may be seated. I don't uh, pay too much or too close attention anymore to all the various discussions and debates going on around COVID and all the things. But every time I, uh, but as I do pop my head into the discussion occasionally, what I'm hearing a little bit, maybe you're hearing this too, is that we're starting to get slightly optimistic that the pandemic of COVID is maybe, hopefully, uh, before too long, going to transition into an endemic, uh, where, or that COVID, as it becomes a little bit more diluted or watered down, through passing, you know, from people now who have antibodies or the vaccine and Bill Gates' microchip in your arms or whatever it is, right? And as we're passing that all now along, like the COVID virus is becoming a little bit more diluted so that it is not as potent and it's moving from, hopefully, Lord willing, a pandemic to an endemic state. Not that it won't still have, from time to time, uh, occasional potent uh, or even deadly consequence, but by and, ho- but by and large, It'll been rendered down to maybe flu-like or cold-like status because it's been so diluted and watered down. Okay, something that's going to be important as we're reading through the book of Revelation, and I think will help us stay on track with the big picture and the big theological messages of the book, is to remember that throughout Revelation, throughout really the whole New Testament, the church is the frontline agency of... The mission of Christ, 
right? The frontline agency through which Jesus is carrying out his mission of redemption and restoration, right? This, this, the agency through which Christ is carrying out his mission on behalf of people whom he loves and a world that he is still deeply invested in. Okay, and if you've been a follower of Jesus for a long time, I think we all know that, right? That we are, we are mission agents for Jesus, right? But sometimes that missionary component can be relegated to just a compartment of life. And what will be helpful for you to remember that in the New Testament, no, that is at the core of what it means to be the church. At the core of the life of the church is the mission of Christ that he calls us to. And that's why you're going to find all throughout the book of Revelation, words like witness, and testimony. That's why literally the church is going to be referred to and pictured as a lampstand that carries the light of Christ out into the world. And there's going to be this concern, you'll see it in today's chapters, that that light, that that witness, that that testimony not get diluted or watered down. Because when that happens, now all of a sudden the mission of Christ is compromised as our witness and our testimony to him is diluted. Sure, it might still be potent in certain areas, but by and large, its effectiveness is compromised. So don't dilute that testimony. That's going to be a major theme throughout the book. The other major theme, that which we're already starting to see, is going to be one of suffering, uh, one of tribulation. We're going to see that word a lot. Um, and particularly, the two churches that we're looking at today are both enduring, increasing trial and tribulation. And so part of my simple question this morning is, how do those two things go together? The witness of the church and the suffering of the church. Or, or maybe more specifically, I'm asking the question, what happens to our witness when we suffer? Right? When you think about suffering in God or suffering in faith, maybe all sorts of questions come up that you have to wrestle with. The particular question we're going after this morning is, what happens to our witness when we suffer and when we experience trial? Or when we experience the frustration of our desires and our goals and our purposes. All right, that's the one thing I'm going after. Uh, and, and I'll also say, too, I, I'm viewing this message also as a bit of a charge uh, to Andrew and to Mike. We always like to give a charge to our new coming elders. I'm viewing the sermon in part as a charge to them. In part because, you know, for me, as I think about the role of an elder or shepherd, one of the most difficult parts of being an elder it's not just that you're called to shepherd sufferers who experience trial, or it's not just that you're called to shepherd the church in mission and lead individuals out in mission faithfully. It's like it's, it's what happens when those two things come together. And that at times you're going to be called to shepherd people in mission who are suffering and who are experiencing trial. And you're going to have to come to them and lead them in ongoing sacrificial, or even maybe even deeper, sacrificial witness and mission for the king. All right, so we're going to be looking at that today. Again, we're looking at this uh, through the church in Smyrna and Pergamum. I probably shouldn't have picked two churches, but there was something in Pergamum Church that I wanted to draw out, so we'll try to make sure we get this all done in a reasonable time here. But first of all, Smyrna, Okay. Uh, but right, again, the thing of both of these churches, they're enduring trial and tribulation. That's why Jesus says to Smyrna, this particular church, hey, I see your tribulation. I see your poverty that you're experiencing. And I see the slander that you're enduring. The interesting thing about uh, Smyrna, I mentioned last week all these letters to these churches that kind of have four parts to them, right? A, a, a glimpse of who Jesus is, a word of commendation, 
or affirmation for the good things going on. Then there's usually a challenge or maybe a rebuke followed by a word of promise. Uh, Smyrna has no word of correction, no word of rebuke. Nowhere in this letter to Smyrna does Jesus say, but I have this against you. (laughs) And the thing in Smyrna, there's this rich uh, spirituality, there's this uh, full of spiritual vitality going on in the church, such that Jesus says to him, but you are rich even in the midst of your poverty. And I point that out just as a good reminder for us, almost like a tangent here, that you know, in our suburban culture where... Prosperity, accomplishment, and good reputation are kind of like the key indicators of success, right? Smyrna is a a counter to that. Smyrna has none of that. They have no material prosperity. They don't have a good reputation in the community, and yet God calls them rich. Or yet to maybe to the American church, where we sometimes have this tendency to put on the pedestal, you know, these mega churches with their nice new fancy buildings that are full of capacity week in and week out and have wonderful programs and gifted, powerful preaching and teaching, right? right here's this reminder that, yeah, the, the life and the power and the dynamic of the church is not evidenced by these external factors, but by the presence of Jesus and his spirit and by our witness, or sorry, our, our worship of him, our submission to him, our delight and our faith uh, in him. So if you ever ask, why can't you preach more like John Piper or Eric Mason or Tim Keller? I'm, uh, the answer is because I'm teaching you the experience of the power of the Spirit in the midst of impoverishment. <laughs> and that is not an occasion for an amen, all right? But anyway... So, Omega, Christ says, I see your tribulation, I see your impoverishment, and I see your slander that you're enduring. The unique uh, situation going on there culturally is that you have a sizable Jewish contingent in Smyrna, and they've had enough of these Christians. In the early days of the church, there was more of an overlap uh, between, you know, Christians and Judaism. You know, uh, people in the church, they would go to the synagogue on Saturday to worship Yahweh, and then maybe on Sunday or throughout the week, they would go to their home churches to celebrate what Yahweh had done for them in Jesus Christ. By the time Revelation is written, uh, that relationship is becoming very frayed. Uh, Jewish folks are tired of hearing about Jesus. Maybe they're tired of their people converting to Christ. They're tired of being associated with these Christians, and so they're you know, kicking them out of the synagogues. They want nothing to do with them. And they're launching a, a sizable smear campaign in Smyrna, launching all sorts of slander against them and their reputation, uh, even at times bringing false accusation and false charge to them legally, such that they wind up in legal trouble. Some wind up in prison. And when you wind up in prison, that means you tend to lose your, your property and your possessions and your life. That's why they're impoverished in part. Right, so again, Jesus says, I see your tribulation, I see your impoverishment, I see your slander by those who say they're Jews, but really are the synagogue of Satan. It's kind of a harsh. But actually, it's, it's an important uh, line here. This is not Jesus or John the writer being anti-Semitic or returning slander for slander, name-calling for name-calling. This is actually a very important line when he says synagogue of Satan here. Because when you read throughout the whole book of Revelation, you know, part of what Revelation does, as we've talked about, it's going to pull the curtain back, you know, so you can see behind the dynamic and the events of life, right? And in particular, it's going, to, it's going to pull the curtain back on the suffering and the tribulation that the church endures. And you're going to see that behind the hardship that they experience in a physical, earthly way is this spiritual enemy 
this spiritual force of darkness, the Satan who is raging against the church, this dragon who is pursuing the church with vengeance. He's ticked off at Christ. He's waging war against Christ. And the way he's doing that is he's raging against the church. Right? So the point, the point in this is, is just that when they call these Jews who are launching slander against the church, the synagogue of Satan, that's not returning slander for slander, or it's not name-calling. It's actually a statement just of fact, that this is what Satan does. Satan is after the ruin of the church, he is out to destroy them, to tear them down. And with your slander and with your false accusations, you are aligning yourself with him. You are participating with him. But the Jewish folks were the ones, you know, who were to live in covenant relationship with God and his people. But instead, they're aligning themselves with the agency of Satan. Satan is using them in his attack against the church. The, the important message for us in our context, is you need to be well aware and you need to understand we never need to, and we should never take lightly that there still is a spiritual force of darkness. There still is this spiritual enemy, this Satan, this one who is raging against Christ, who wages war against the church in a whole host of different ways. And the suffering that we experience, the trials, the temptation we experience, it's not just a flesh and blood earthly dynamic, but there is a spiritual component to that. We are caught up in a very real spiritual and dark conflict. And so that's why Jesus says to the church in Smyrna, do not fear for the trial is about to come your way for Satan is going to test you. You are going to be thrown or sorry. He doesn't actually say Satan's going to test you. He says Satan's going to throw you into prison for 10 days. And then he adds so that you may be tested. Uh, I don't want to dive into a debate about symbolic reference of numbers here this morning. That number 10, most commentators would say it's probably a symbolic reference to an undetermined period of time, as Revelation will use numbers very symbolically all throughout the book. But why I mention that is because, actually for me, I think it's actually a reference back to the book of Daniel, which Revelation does all the time. And you think about the beginning of the book of Daniel. Uh, Daniel was part of the Israelites who get carried off into exile in, in Babylon, and Daniel and some of his friends are taken by King Nebuchadnezzar and put in the court of wise men. And as part of being a part of the court of wise men, you have the privilege of sitting at the king's table and enjoying the king's food and the king's feasts. But Daniel doesn't want to defile himself with the king's food. And so he says, no, no thanks. You keep your food and your wine. Just give us water and vegetables. And uh, the authorities are, are not so keen on that. But Daniel said, hey, test us for 10 days. And see what happens. And so they eat their just their vegetables and their water for 10 days. And at the end of 10 days, this time of testing, the guys come back and they see that they're uh, looking more better in appearance and countenance. And uh, so I say, okay, you can continue on with your diet of vegetables and water. Which, by the way, just aside, it does also say too there that they, uh, their flesh was fattened by the vegetables and water. So, which is why for me that, uh, you know, I, I still consider uh, a diet of cheesesteaks and barbecue as being good for weight loss, if you want, apparently. But hopefully you've learned by now not to take nutritional advice from me. So on we go. Right, but you, the bigger picture is that this time of imprisonment, this time of trial, is meant to be this time of testing, where the watching world and the officials and those who are putting him in prison will have this opportunity to see through this testing, okay, who is it that you really worship at the end of the day? When your comfort, when your security, when your home, when your life is taken from you, 
What is exactly the most valued thing in your heart and in your life? Is this Jesus really as valuable and worth as much to you as you say he is? Right, I think we all know when life is easy, comfortable, status quo, you might be worshiping God well, you might be serving him faithfully, giving testimony to him, but it's in those times of testing, or times of, or sorry, it's in those times of trial, or in times of suffering, or where our life is frustrating and our desires are being thwarted, that, okay, now we're really going to test, okay, what is it that you worship? And what is it that is most precious and most valuable and most glorious to you and in your heart? Right, if you take something from me, it's very precious. You step on my comfort or my peace and security or whatever. Well, through the way I respond to you, you will see what it is I worship. You will see whether it is, in fact, I worship Jesus who calls me to respond in a certain way or whether I worship my own desires or something else. Or more specifically, in a time of testing, and you take something from me or whatever, or I experience suffering, I will give testimony to either the glory and the worth and the value of Christ, or I will give glory and worth to the value of my own desires and the things I'm longing for by the way I react and the way that I respond. Right? You see that? You understand that, right? This is what suffering does. And in one way, when things are stripped bare, it tests us. It tests us for ourselves to see who it is that we actually worship, and it tests us before a watching world. It gives us opportunity to declare either the glory and the worth and the value of Christ or the glory and the worth and the value of the things that we are longing for and wanting. And so Jesus says, do not fear and be faithful, even unto death. And to those who conquer, I will give the crown of life. Uh, and certainly that word conquer there doesn't mean physically overpower and conquer your oppressors. It literally means that you conquer their attempt to pull you off of your testimony to Christ. Right? Or in other words, conquer is synonymous with being faithful to Christ, being faithful in your testimony, in your witness, and in your glorying of Christ. So to him who conquers and who is faithful, I will grant the crown of life. Uh, the image of Jesus that's given here to the Smyrna church in the very beginning, like all the letters have, is the image of Jesus as the first and the last, the one who died and is now alive. And it's the picture of Jesus who suffered in his own life and flesh, all that the enemy could throw at him, who suffered the biggest weapon that Satan had to wield, death itself. But he rose three days later victorious over that. And in his victory, in his own conquering, now he has the ability to give to all that crown of life. So be faithful. Look to Jesus. Be faithful even unto death, because if it comes to that, this Jesus, this conquering king, is able to bestow on you the crown of life. Ah. Yeah, we're a little over time today. So I was going to give you a testimony about uh, one of the bishops of Smyrna. But go up, go back home and read sometime uh, The Martyrdom of Polycarp. And he's actually one of the bishops uh, in Smyrna. And shortly after this period of time, he gets arrested at like year 80, 86 years old. So, you know, emeritus, you can still get arrested later on in life, right? And 
long story short, when they're, you know, lighting the flames as he's tied to the, the stake about to be burned for his faith, they, they tell, ask him to recount his faith. And long story short, he says, Jesus has never failed me. He's been faithful to me all throughout my life. How could I not be faithful to him now? And his example of faithfulness, his strength in the midst of trial was not only an incredible test, uh, encouragement to the Smyrnan church, uh, but then it was sent by letter out to the various churches and strengthened their faith. And even in a letter, they find out that many of the heathens who were there and witnessed the event were challenged and convicted and either even converted to Christ. Go look it up. Martyrdom of Polycarp. Okay, but that's the letter to the church in Smyrna. Uh, again, I wanted to include in Pergamum. Pergamum, a similar situation. They're enduring trial and tribulation, uh, not from a Jewish contingent here. Uh, their tribulation... Uh, is coming directly from the Roman authorities. The Roman authorities now, as it's called, is the throne of Satan in Pergamum. And in particular, they're suffering there because they won't participate in the emperor worship. Pergamum was kind of like an epicenter for emperor worship. There's a long-standing tradition in Rome. When an emperor dies, they were counted you know, to have ascended among the gods. They were deified, right? And so you, there's a long-standing tradition that you could come and you could worship and you could offer sacrifices uh, to a deceased emperor and maybe he would help you out or whatever. I don't know. Uh, but probably around the time this is written is around the reign of uh, Caesar Domitius. Domitian. Domitian. And uh, Domitian's an interesting guy. It, basically, he loves power. He loves the fame, the accolades that comes with it, so much so that he says, hey, why do I have to wait till I'm dead to receive the worship of the people? Uh, and so he pronounces a publication uh, that he essentially has become divine by his ascending to the throne as emperor, as Caesar. And so he publishes a decree that everyone across the empire uh, should regularly come into the town square or regularly come to the feasts and the celebration in honor of the emperor and burn a pinch of incense and declare, hail Caesar is Curios and Theos, Lord and God. Of course, the Christians had a problem with this. But then there was only one God worthy of worship, and there was only one Lord who was executing the purposes of God, Jesus Christ. And so they couldn't do that, uh, which got them labeled as unpatriotic, anti-Rome, and certainly put them on a Domitian's hit list or put them on the hit list of the local magistrates. Right, And so they're suffering as a result of that. The unique thing that's going on um, in Pergamum is Christ says, but I have this against you. And essentially, they're starting to weaken in their testimony. Their testimony to Christ is starting to become diluted as they're starting to compromise with the surrounding culture. They've got these pesky Nicolaitans. We see them showing up again. We don't necessarily know who they are or what they were about, but we get a little bit of a clue in here where they link them to Balak and Balaam. Another Old Testament reference, reference, right? Revelation will keep our heads spinning back and forth between the Old and New Testament. But if you go into the book of Numbers, when Israel is coming from Egypt into the promised land and they're venturing through the wilderness, the Moabite king Balak gets his prophet Balaam and says, hey, go pronounce a curse on those people. He goes and tries to do that, can't do it, goes back to the king. Sorry, king, didn't work, couldn't pronounce a curse on them. But I got an idea for you. If you want to trip them up or lead them astray or whatever, why don't you send some of the nice, pretty, fancy ladies that we got here in Moab over there. Maybe they can entice some of those men, you know, into whatever. And sure enough, some of that works. They send some of the Moabite women over there, engage, and the men get caught up in some immorality. 
But even worse, they get caught up in idolatry, as you find, I forget what chapter it is, these Moabite women leading them to worship of Baal. And so probably by referencing that in reference to the Nicolaitans, probably what the Nicolaitans were doing is that they're coming in with their blended form of Christianity, and they're saying, hey, it's okay you know, to worship Jesus and to go to some of these feasts and celebrations where food is being sacrificed to idols or to gods or to the emperor or whatever. Or it's okay if you want to go to the festival of Artemis or the celebrations for Dionysius, which would often have very uh, immoral practices associated with that. And hey, if you want to engage in that, no problem. It's okay. Again, a little bit what we talked about last week, this blending of Christianity with sort of this broader pagan cultural religious practices. Okay, but when that happens, what's happening? that the Christian church and their faith and their witness to Christ is becoming diluted. It's being watered down. It's being weakened, which is such a, a sad thing because, look, what happens in that dark culture, what that culture needs more than anything else is a shining, is a bright shining, a brilliant demonstration, testimony of who Jesus is. And that's what the church is called to. That's their fundamental purpose. And so to give in and to yield to deny their purpose and their mission, and it's to deny the culture, the testimony to Christ that they need. Okay, but you understand how this happens, right? To a church that's enduring hardship and suffering and experiencing tribulation because they're so exclusive and because they won't go participate in these feasts and sacrifices and they won't participate in these immoral activities. They've got a target on their back and they're experiencing hardship. Man, you can see how you get somebody fancy prophet, preacher, come in and say, hey, look, it's okay. You can go participate in this, that, and the other. Man, that would sound really good because it might mean an alleviation of some of the pressure. I don't think we've had to suffer the way Pergamum had to suffer, but I think we understand this, right? If you're a young person in school, you know that sometimes there's that pressure to compromise, you know, the things that are important to Jesus or the things that he calls you to so that maybe... I don't know, you'll fit in, blend in, have a little bit of a better reputation with friends or whoever. Or if you're in the business world, sometimes there's pressure to compromise the ethics that you feel Christ has called you to. Or just in general, in our culture, where the church is increasingly being labeled as more and more intolerant or narrow-minded, right? there is going to be this increased pressure to compromise on the convictions that Jesus will ask us to hold or to compromise on the things that Jesus says are important to him and that he calls us to. And that would be a shame, right? Because it would be a denial of the whole purpose of the church. And it would be denying to our culture that desperately needs to see Christ, a shining example of him as we water it down and we dilute it by compromising with the surrounding culture. And so Jesus, again, he calls the church in Pergamum, be faithful. He says, look, if you don't deal with the Nicolaitans, I'm going to come and deal with them, and I'm going to wage war again with the sword of my mouth. Basically, if you don't take my words and apply it to them and deal with them appropriately, I'm going to come and war with them with my words. And again, he gives a promise to him who is faithful and who overcomes. I will give the manna from heaven, the secret manna. Right, otherwise, in other words, I will give you the nourishment that you need in the wilderness. That's what manna was for the Israel. I will give you that manna, that nourishment. And I'll give you this white stone with an inscription on it. 
We don't necessarily know what that means. That can mean a lot of different things. But we do know, archaeology has found out, that a lot of the buildings in Pergamum were built largely with either black stone or stone with kind of a pinkish hue. Um, but every now and then in some of the buildings, they would find this one white stone. And they were pretty certain that that white stone would have to be imported from someplace else because it wasn't natural to the Pergamum area, which would likely mean that it was pretty valuable and pretty costly and pretty precious. And sometimes these white stones in these buildings would have actual inscription on them in some way. We also know, too, that actually uh, important people back then, if they were going to throw a fancy dinner party and you were going to get an invitation, they didn't have, you know, printed invitations that they would hand out like we do today, but they might take a, a, a white stone. And give you a white stone, and that would be kind of like your ticket into the party. So there's probably some indication here. You know, there's something precious about this stone that Jesus is giving. And I would say, you know, I think when he says there's going to be inscription on here that only you and I know, the one who receives it knows. I think that's just a symbol of the intimacy that Jesus has with every individual follower of him. I think it's basically Jesus saying, look, to him who is faithful and who endures and who overcomes through their faithfulness, I'm going to give you the gift of myself. I will be your manna. I will be engaged in intimate relationship with you. And I will welcome to you, welcome you into my eternal feast, my eternal celebration. Come with it, whatever they throw at you. You have the invitation to my eternal feast. So be faithful and overcome. I think it's the same encouragement for us, right? When we feel that pressure, when we feel that trial, right? the same encouragement to those of us who choose to worship and delight in Jesus above all else, to those of us who choose to entrust our lives to him, to those of us who choose to submit ourselves to his word and to submit ourselves to the things that he calls us to as his faithful witnesses, he will give to us the gift of himself. And he will be our manna and our nourishment. And he will lead us into his glorious purposes and his glorious intentions. The bigger point is we bring this to a close. Go back to that original question. What happens to our testimony in the face of trial? Well, the first thing it does is it tests us, exposes in our own minds, but also before watching world, what it is we genuinely worship, who it is that we genuinely worship, And we will give testimony one way or another in our times of trial, whether Jesus is of supreme value and supreme worth and glory or whether something else is. And trial also tempts us to compromise, to dilute our testimony so that maybe we blend in and some of that pressure is alleviated. It tempts us to compromise. And so the simple challenge for you, the church, is to remember that the fundamental purpose One of the fundamental purposes of the church is to be a pure, undefiled, undiluted witness to the glory of Christ in your words, in your life, in our worship together. We are called as his mission agents to give undiluted testimony and witness to his glory. Trial and suffering will test that and tempt it. Watch out for that. Be aware of that. And to all the elders, but especially Mike and Andrew, remember, a part of the difficult calling of an elder is that you are called to lead people who at times are going to suffer, whether it's through direct persecution or whether it's just through living in a broken, fallen world. You have the, I want to say unfortunate, but it is fortunate, calling 
to lead those sufferers in faithful, victorious witness and testimony to the glory of Christ. But you have this hard calling to sit across the table from somebody who's suffering the loss of something or is grieving this pain that they're enduring in life or is maybe even experiencing pressure from a surrounding culture that's growing increasingly hostile, whatever it is, and you have uh, the burden of calling them into deeper, more faithful witness, more sacrificial witness. Your calling is to do that uh, with your own lives, leading that as an example. Uh, Your calling uh, is to... Uh, to to guard the church when, I don't know, false ideas or false doctrines might slip into the church that would tempt us to compromise or, to do, or that would in any way diminish the glory of Christ. My, your, your responsibility is to be a student of the word and a student of the important doctrines of Christ and to guard us together against that. Your calling is to lead us to Christ, the one who gives us the crown of life, the one who gives us manna, the one who leads us into his eternal feast. Your your calling is to always constantly point us towards this Jesus who inspires our witness and our faithful service. And I would say to you, the congregation as well too, trust your elders and follow their lead. Uh, The elders are a wonderful gift that Jesus gives to the church to help us, particularly to remain faithful to our calling and to our witness, especially in times of trial and suffering. You know, and I think about Andrew and Mike in particular, and they've been, they both together individually have been great sources of encouragement and challenge to me, in particularly these areas, right? Mike was going about his business, living a normal, comfortable status quo life, whatever. I don't, not status, I mean, sure, it's very exciting and all that, but, but then all of a sudden God comes to him and says, Mike, uh, I might have deeper ministry purposes for you, and so I want you to go take on a seminary education, <laughs> So on top of his job and on top of his family and on top of everything else he's doing in church, Mike says, okay, sure, fine. And he gives up his time. He gives up his financial resources. He sacrifices some of the things he would love to do with his family to go take on a seminary education so that he can be equipped, ready, however God might call, however God might use him. You know, or I think of Andrew, who you know, was working over at the Christian Academy and felt God calling him, hey, I want you to go teach uh, in inner city Chester. Kind of a bold move, big move, Andrew, in submission to the call, to the purpose, whatever Christ lays on his heart, says, okay. And he gets up and leaves his job. Christian goes teaching public schools over in, in Chester. You know, or even I think about Andrew. I was with some group of pastors this week, and one pastor said, you know, it's kind of a model at our church that when you come to church, the idea is I'm laying my burdens down to serve you. We all come in burdened, right? But when we come to church, the model is I'm laying down my burden to serve you. And it's you know, poignant that we are installing Andrew today, right? Coming off the week, one of the, probably the most painful week of the year for him, where he's remembering the curse of cancer and what it took from him seven years ago and from his family. And yet, what's happening today? He's laying his burden down so that he might answer the call of Christ to serve you. Man, follow that example. And look, let me be clear here. I'm closing the sermon. I am not closing this sermon by exalting two men. <laughs> I'm closing this sermon by exalting Christ who is giving these men and their giftedness to you, right? It is testimony of Christ's love, his patience, and his mercy for the church that he would call and endow by his spirit and entrust his church with qualified men to lead as elders. 
Right? It's evidence that Christ has pledged himself in the midst of trial and suffering to be with his church, to shepherd the church, to be that hidden manna, and that he provides for us gifted and sacrificial leaders to do that. And so, man, it's an awesome privilege of yours to follow Christ by following those he has entrusted to guard and to steward and to shepherd the church. And in all things, we do this because Christ is worth it. We remain faithful. We submit under trial. And we hold fast to our testimony in all things because Christ is that glorious. The Christ who is able to bestow on you the crown of life. The Christ who is able to give to you a name that only you and he know. The Christ who is able to welcome you into his eternal banquet. This Christ is worth it. And so why would we ever deny our responsibility as servants of him? Why would we ever deny a watching world the testimony to Christ by compromising, by diluting, weakening our faith? So may that never happen among us. May Christ cause our witness, our testimony, our mission to increase so that he might be glorified among us and the watching world might see and be drawn to him and the life that he offers. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.